I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And this week on the show, I'm joined by the one and only Bill Winky to dive into how his approach to hunting the whitetail rut has evolved in recent years. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today, we've got a good one, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking the whitetail rut, and I'm joined by Bill Winky. Most of you, I would assume, know who Bill Winky is. He was the founder and the host of Midwest Whitetail, a little uh, show that has been on the air for many a year now, uh, wildly successful. Um, Bill has made a living hunting, talking about, writing about, filming big white-tailed deer, and teaching folks how to hunt them. And he's recently now kind of taken a step away from it. He's gotten away from the media side of things, and he's hunting new country in new ways. And all of that, I think, has led to him um, kind of having a refreshed new perspective on some certain things. And so what I wanted to do was dive in with Bill on A, his general approach to the whitetail rut, everything from how he believes the rut evolves over the course of the year to his favorite stand sites to how he thinks about wind and access and exit and uh, different phases of the rut, how to kill deer right now in late October, all that kind of stuff. We, we break down a lot of the essentials that you need to know to hunt this upcoming time of the year. But I also want to dive into how things have changed for him, how he views things differently maybe now than he used to what he does differently now than he used to. Uh, there's some really interesting stuff in here that I think might surprise you and I think will uh, represent a new view on hunting the rut compared to maybe some things you've heard from Bill in the past. So I'm excited for you to get to hear that. And I'm also excited just in general for what we've got ahead of us because this is it, guys. This is what we've dreamed of for 11 months or however long it's been since the last time you saw running action. It's here. When this podcast comes out, will be October 28th, which for most parts of the country is the kickoff. I mean, it's it's happening. I'm hoping you're spending a lot of time in the tree right now. 
in the weeks to come. Um, I've had a crazy few weeks. I've got a crazy few weeks ahead of me. Um, I guess, you know, since I don't get to do as many of those long BS sessions with Dan like we used to back in the early years, I haven't got to update all of you on what's actually happening in my personal hunting life. Let me give you a little uh, teaser, I suppose, on some of those things, because if you follow me on Instagram, you know what's going on. It's at Wired to Hunt. Um, But if not, you might be in the dark, and it's worth noting there has been a lot going on. And I will be doing full podcasts on some of these trips that I've been going on, but I'm not going to run those until later in the year. Uh, I want to make sure we spend the hunting season period giving you guys helpful information, stuff that's going to help you hunt right now. I I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think you want to hear me, John, about a story when you're just trying to figure out how to kill a deer tomorrow or next week. So I want to try to stay focused on that how-to stuff now. And then once we get past the at least the heart of the season, then I'll fill you guys in on all the details of how these trips went. But a couple headliners, I guess. Number one, you might have heard that I was hunting in Washington, D.C. We were hunting the suburbs of D.C., actually, over in Virginia back in early October. And this is part of that series that I described. I think it was last week or two weeks ago I described um, this new project I'm undertaking in which we're you know, traveling the country, meeting with different experts in whitetail hunting with, with very unique styles and approaches and in very different, unique regions. And I'm going in there and I'm spending a day, day and a half with each of these people to learn about how they do what they do, following them around the woods, uh, watching how they approach hunting, talking through their strategy, talking through the types of areas they look for, just basically trying to do a podcast, but in person, breaking down everything they do. And then I'm tasked with trying to hunt in this area using what I learned from them and trying to get a deer killed. So that first trip was DC. I was with Taylor Chamberlain, the urban bowman. He's specialized in killing these deer in the suburbs. And I will tell you that it was an incredibly challenging hunt. It was very tricky because you know I had to spend that day and a half with Taylor trying to learn about what he does. And then I had to actually go out and try to get permission myself. So I went and knocked on doors on dozens of homes, not dozens, I think 13 homes is what I ended up knocking on. And these are like mega mansions outside of DC. So I had some very interesting interactions. I did get permission in a couple spots. Um, and I will save most of what happened, but I will give you one teaser, which is amidst all of that, amidst that hunt, and uh, everything that followed, I had the cops called on me. I was not doing anything illegal. We were we were in the right, but just as a indication of how bizarre things are out there and how out of the norm hunting is and doing stuff out there, uh, hunting in neighborhoods, I had to deal with the cops on that one. So that's trip number one. Trip number two, I went to Arkansas, hunting in the national forests, the mountains of Arkansas, big woods, public land deer. And I was visiting with my buddy Clay Newcomb. Clay Newcomb's the host of the Bear Grease podcast. He's part of the Mediator team. So we went out there, we packed in on his mule, got back there several miles into the National Forest, and I set up camp, spent a morning with Clay, walking around, scouting, getting his whole approach that he has learned from his mentor, James Lawrence, who's a big woods mountain hunter that he kind of tutored underneath. And the interesting thing from that one, I'll give you the final outcome, which is pretty exciting. And I figure it's worth mentioning because it just happened recently. 
is that after a really tough hunt in tough circumstances with very few deer and uh, not a lot of hope, I killed a buck. I got an Arkansas deer uh, about four miles back into the National Forest, got one down, nice little eight pointer. And you can see pictures of him on uh, the Wired Hunt Instagram as well. So those were the two big trips I've had so far this year, other than that Idaho public land hunt that I did do a podcast on. Much more to come on both of these. uh, But as I mentioned, we'll wait till we get later into the year. I've also got in, I had a couple hunts in Michigan. And then just now this week, I get to hunt more in Michigan again. But uh, I'll save what's happening there for a later time as well. So that's, that's kind of the latest on me. Want to give you a quick, uh, a quick update. Otherwise, today's show with Bill is a good one. I suppose I want to leave you with just a couple other thoughts because this is going to be the last podcast you hear from me until November. Um, we've got an episode with Tony Peterson lined up again for next week, so you're not going to hear from me at least until almost the middle of the month. So I want to leave you with some parting words, a few things to think about before we get into Bill's um, additional rut hunting insight. I think the big The big thing I want to remind you all of, and this is something that we've talked a lot about over the years, but it's the fact that the rut is this wild roller coaster of emotion for a lot of people, right? There's the, there's the X's of O's, excuse me. There's the X's and O's for hunting the rut, which is what we're going to talk about with Bill, which is knowing how to find the right places to set up your tree stand or your saddle, which is knowing the right times to hunt, which is knowing you know, how to get in and out without spooking deer, how to play the wind, all that kind of stuff, how to use trail cameras to pattern deer, so on and so forth. That's obviously a part of this. But then there's this whole other part, which is can you keep your head in the game? Can you stick it out for 13 hours or 12 hours on stand all day and stay positive and stay focused? Can you get up at 3.30 or 4 a.m. every day and still have the energy to roll out of bed and go do the thing? Can you hunt for seven days straight, finally get a shot at a buck and then miss him and then somehow wrestle up the energy and the tenacity to go back out there tomorrow and try again? Can you get out there, travel 13 hours to Ohio or Kansas for this big trip you've dreamed about for three years and you get out there and you find out that the neighbor's seven dogs have been running over the property every day you're out there and keep on going through that. Like there's so many different challenges. There's so many different things that can go wrong and you've built up all this excitement and anticipation and you have such expectations for the rut that those two things, when they collide, when adversity and expectation collides, it can be, it can be tough. It can be tough. And what I have learned over the years has, has maybe could be distilled down to two big things. Cause you've heard me in the past kind of go on and on about these things in different episodes, right? I think the two things that have helped me the most are this. Number one, as hard as this is to do sometimes, try to remember to enjoy and find your joy in the process, not the end result. Because there's a whole lot of things that can happen that are outside of our control that might be part of what determines if we actually fill a tag, if we actually kill a deer, if we actually kill that big giant buck, whatever it might be. That's not ultimately 100% within our control. So if all of your fun and joy for your trip or for your hunting season is wrapped up in that one thing, you're really setting yourself up for a lot of failure and misery. And, you know, hunting should not be that. This thing is supposed to be fun. We do this because we love it. We do it because we're passionate about it. We do it because this is something that is supposed to be a net positive in our lives. 
if we only focus on the end result, it won't be. So you got to remember to enjoy the present, enjoy each step along the way, enjoy those early mornings and, and try to have fun along the way. And if you lose that fun, if you're doing something and you get to the point, you realize, you know what, this isn't fun anymore. Well, then maybe you got to take a step back. Maybe you do need a break. Maybe you need to rethink what you're doing or how you're doing it. Um, at least for me, that's where I've ended up. It might be my phase of my life, might be you know some of the experiences I've had, but I'm at the point now where filling a tag and being miserable isn't worth it. This thing is supposed to be fun. Enjoy yourselves out there and do whatever you need to do to make sure it is still a good time. Now that all said, if you are goal-oriented and you really do want to kill that mature buck or whatever your personal goal is, you do need to be dedicated to it. You do need to know that this is going to be hard. And that's what the second part of my advice comes down to, which is dedicating yourself to execution, right? There's so much that we know to do. You've heard me talk on this podcast. You've heard Tony talk on the Foundations podcast. You've heard every week on Rut Fresh Radio when we talk about, well, you should do this idea. You should try this thing. You should sit in these kinds of spots. You should look for scrapes at this time of year and funnels at this time of year and dough bedding areas at this time of year. And you should take the long way around and not spook deer out of the fields, so on and so on and so on. Most anyone listening to this podcast knows the things to do, but there's a much smaller portion of this audience who will actually do the thing because so many of these things aren't easy. They aren't convenient. They're not simple. They require work. They require determination. And my, my experience has been, there's got to be this balancing act between making sure you stay fun, stay having fun, but then also kind of steal yourself for those tough times. Harden yourself to the fact that there will be adversity. There will be toughness. There will be some hard things you have to do if you want to achieve your goals and be willing to look that hardship right in the hairy eyeball and take it on. Because in the long run, that kind of thing is fun in its own way. Pushing through tough times is a whole lot of fun if you can do it and you can get to the other side. So enjoy yourselves. Find joy in the process, but be ready and prepared to handle the tough times, push through them, work hard and execute on the stuff you know you got to do. If you can do those two things, if you can balance those two sides of what the rut requires, you can achieve your goals and have a whole hell of a lot of fun along the way. And that is what I'm hoping for each and every one of you. I'm hoping and wishing and crossing my fingers that you guys have an unbelievable whitetail rut. I know you've been working hard. I know you've been looking forward to this. I have to, I am going to be spending the next few days here trying to fill a tag in Michigan, then I'm off to Iowa, then I'm off to Nebraska, and I uh, hope I'll bring back some great stories and a few lessons learned along the way as well. So thank you all for tuning into the Wired Hunt podcast, and uh, let's go enjoy ourselves. And before that, though, let's learn from Bill Winky as he describes his evolving approach to hunting the whitetail rut. Enjoy. All right, here with me now is Bill Winky. Bill, thank you so much for making the time to uh, jump back on the show with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, hopefully the audio comes off all right. I'm driving my truck heading up to my hunting spot, so <laughs> there might be a little background sound. That's going to be the wheels on the highway. That is 100% okay. That That's actually the best possible <laughs> scenario, knowing that you're fully locked in and ready to go hunting. That's, that's going to make this conversation better than most, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you're 
you're feeling uh you've got to be feeling pretty good it's october 25th i think when we're recording this it's uh it's just about the best time of the year wouldn't you agree yeah i think so and, and we've just had this pretty pretty strong front go through we had thunderstorms a bunch of rain high wind uh today right now i'm in central iowa heading north it's 42 degrees so you know high let's say in the 40s uh I'm going to be in a probably in a blind this afternoon, but this is really the official kickoff. I think I always figure October 25th is kind of when it all starts, and uh, you can get the odd buck on a daylight pattern before that. But you know, from here on out, you should expect it to be you know solid action pretty much whenever the temperatures are cool enough, uh, catch the right doe in the right place, and you know, you're going to have a lot of you know, a lot of buck activities. So yeah, it's time to start. Yeah. Uh, I haven't, I haven't done any deer hunting yet. I spent some time up in British Columbia. Then since I got back, I've been moving blinds around, kind of taking care of a few things around the house and, you know, helping some farmers and stuff like that. But, you know, it's just basically, you know, I don't like to get started too soon just because I'm afraid that I'll educate the deer before they're actually moving well during the day. Mm-hmm. So you know, unless I've got one on a daylight pattern, I just wait until about this time. Yeah. Can you, can you give us a little context for your hunting situation these days? Because for folks that are used to hearing from you over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, you've traditionally been spending a lot of time on your home farm in Southern Iowa. You've got a whole new kind of world around you now. Can you give us the details on that? What your situation is now? Yeah. Uh, we sold that back in the summer of 2020. So it would have been the summer before this past one. Last year was my first year uh, hunting someplace other than our farm for 18 seasons. So I think I hunted 18 seasons on our farm in southern Iowa. And then uh, last year was my first time kind of back out into the real world, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> but it's still not the real world. I mean, I've, I've got really good places to hunt. You know, I, the area where I'm going to right now is where I hunted last year, and this is where I grew up. You know, and I'm fourth generation on both sides of my family in that area. So as far as knowing people, knowing places to hunt, uh, you know, I've got a good running start there. It's not, it's not like I went out and, and you know, had to start completely from scratch. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you have to learn a new property. Uh, but that style of hunting up in northeast Iowa in the bluff country is pretty straightforward. You know, people think that it's challenging, but it's really not because the you know, the deer utilize that terrain in a really predictable way. So as long as you know there's good, solid, mature bucks around, you can usually figure out pretty quick how they're moving through that country. So it's, uh, you know, I hit the ground running, I guess. Uh, I don't feel I don't feel like I've got a lot of catching up to do. In fact, I think this is actually easier than uh, where I used to hunt down there in southern Iowa, where you had a little bit more random movement. So I know last year you, at least correct me if I'm wrong on this, but as I understand it, you sold your farm and you were planning on buying new ground up in this new part of the state, but that didn't work out. So you leased something. Are you still hunting that same lease or do you have new spots? What's that situation? Yep. Still hunting that lease. It was a piece of ground I tried to buy and the fellow didn't want to sell it. And, uh, you know, I figured if I leased it, then, uh, you know, at least I'd still have a chip in the game in case he changed his mind. But, you know, I don't see him changing his mind. I've, I've worked on him pretty hard and, and, uh, 
he's pretty, he's a, <laughs> he's a pretty definite no, but, uh, it's good hunting. It's a, it's a really pretty area and it's an area that I hunted when I was a kid, you know, so that kind of, uh, you know, going back full circle is pretty fun for me, you know, going back to hunt spots that I hunted 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, the land ownership has changed almost universally. There's almost none of the same people owning the same properties in that neighborhood as it was 30 years ago, but there's still people that I know. They're just different people. Yeah. And in, in, in that situation with the lease, do you have the ability to make any land improvements? Have you done food plots or is this a kind of hands off, just hunt and don't mess with the, with the farmer's crops? What's that? Yeah, that's kind of it. And, and I'm sure that, you know, if I wanted to, to spend the time and the money, the landowner wouldn't say, don't do it. It's just, uh, you know, there's a limit to, uh, you know, what a guy can spend on, on the leased ground. You know, I'd like it if he actually put the food plots in, yeah. uh, but <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but there's still enough crop in there and, you know, left over from the combining and, you know, that food is not really the issue. Uh, being able to concentrate the deer isn't even really the issue either, because like I said, the terrain is so predictable um, if I owned it, I would set it up a little bit differently and it would be probably even easier yet to hunt, but it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. I'm not saying that I'm going to go in there and knock over a great big giant buck right away. That's not necessarily the case, but as far as like figuring out how to set up and, and, uh, what these deer are going to be doing, uh, I don't have any real, you know, I don't have any problems there because again, like I said, I grew up doing this and mm-hmm. this, this is kind of in my you know, in my history. Yeah. I, I want to dive into how you do that. Like why, why this seems so relatively straightforward and what your approach is going to be in that habitat. But, but real quick, I want to circle back to something you brought up at the beginning, which is the fact that October 25th is kind of your kickoff and you're viewing from here on out as, you know, the, the rise of the rut and all that activity is going to, you know, begin here and, and continue on through November. I've heard you talk a lot about kind of the way you view the process of the rut and the timing of when different things happen and, and how you evolve your approach throughout that, you know, three to four week period, whatever it might be. Um, can you just walk us through the timeline that you kind of how you place the rut on the timeline? If it kicks off around October 25th, could you just walk us through what, how things change when you see them changing and what that means to you as a hunter as we go from now till whenever you view the end being? Yeah. So I think that the, the rut, in my opinion, is roughly October 25th through roughly November 25th, 26th, 27th, somewhere in there. So it's about a month. And uh, the very best hunting of the whole season can be this last week of October if it's cold. Uh, if we get a cold front come through, and like I said, we've got, you know, a pretty pretty decent conditions right now. Uh, you know, I wish it was just a little bit brisker, but it's still pretty good for October. You know, that's, that's sort of uh, the best case scenario because you're always trying to catch that buck when the first doe in his range, you're even closer to his core when she comes into estrus because there's going to be sort of a reckless abandon that takes place at that time. And then after the first doe or two, you know, then they sort of settle into the business of the rut. And then it becomes a lot tougher. 
you don't get nearly as much daylight movement as you as you really sink into the, the middle of the rut. Everybody thinks that the middle of the rut is when the action is at, but I really feel like the action is at the front end, you know, before those bucks get a whole lot of breeding under their belt. They're a little bit, you know, a little bit perkier, a little bit uh, um, more active. They're covering ground. They might be maybe possibly you know, trying to find that next doe. Um, so I feel like right now you want to hunt as close to the areas where you've been getting pictures of, of a buck, you know, coming into this time frame as you can, you know, without, because he's not going to be traveling a lot. Like I said, it's kind of the best case scenario. The rut has got him fired up, but he's, he's not really uh, you know, leaving his core. You're going to find him where you expect to find him. Uh, so th- I like this time, you know, I, I feel like you know, I killed a nice buck last year on the 29th of October and the year before that, 2019, I killed a really nice one on the 23rd of October. You know, I was a little bit earlier in my start that year. Uh, you know, like I said, I've got a, a definite favoritism toward this last week of October. Then the first maybe 10 to 12 days of November you're hunting the does because they're still using their, their more traditional areas. You know, they're feeding still for the most part in the places where they've been feeding all fall and they're bedding in the places where they've been bedding all fall. And then you hit a certain point in the rut where everything kind of falls apart. And that's sometime after the 12th, 13th, uh, I call it the lull in the rut. You know, it's just a time when it seems like most of the does, not most of the does, but the highest number of does are in estrus. You know, so the bucks have really settled into, into the business of breeding. It's not this fever pace like you've got early in the rut. They're just taking care of business. And they do most of that at night. They're not active, really pursuing does during the day. They're not covering a lot of ground. They don't have to because so many of them are in estrus. Uh, and the does themselves have been badgered enough that they're not really using their normal areas anymore. So it, it gets a lot tougher, I feel like, during that part of the rut. And sometimes I'll take a few days off there and just get away from it, you know, but that's, uh, that's the hardest part I, I feel like to, to hunt. And all you're doing, I think during that part of the run is just being out there and hoping that a hot doe comes by. Cause if you get a hot doe to come through, she'll usually have a buck or two behind her. Uh, it's not like, like the early in the run when there might be five or six bucks chasing after her, but you should have something trailing behind her and, and uh, you know, trying to catch up. Um, so you're typically hunting a little bit further away from the open areas back in the, in the heavier cover. Those does are trying to get away from being badgered by every single buck out there. Uh, that, that time frame, I feel like takes, takes us up until about the 20th, roughly 22nd of November. And in a lot of states, you're, you're past the bow season. You know, so you're not really hunting natural movement patterns anymore. You're hunting, you know, more of the forced movement that comes with the firearm season. But in the states that I've been hunting mostly, like Iowa, Kansas, uh, you're still during the bow season, which is my preference, of course. I'd like to be able to hunt the rut the whole month in November with my bow. So if you're in one of those places that you'll see 
after about the 22nd of November is you'll see the does and going back to food, but you'll see that little burst of extra movement then by the older age class bucks trying to pick off that last, you know, hot doe that's, that's on the tail end of the, of the bell curve. So if you think of, you know, the number of does in estrus as a, as a bell shape, you know, early in the rut, there's not very many. Then in the middle of the rut, which is roughly about November 15th in most parts of the country, mm-hmm. that's when the highest number are in estrus. And then the bell starts sweeping back downward. Then you get to, you know, the, the lower end of that. And that's somewhere around the 25th, 26th, 27th of, of November where the, you come to the end of the bell. So when you have less does, you know, the bucks haven't quite completely lost interest in the rut yet. At least the older ones haven't. And you'll still see them just maybe a second wave of, of uh, natural movement during that last part of the rut. And that's mostly around food. You can still do well in the mornings, you know, getting around bedding areas, you know. But it seems like the bulk of the action is in the last part of November is back around food again in the, in the evenings. Uh, so hopefully I didn't throw too much at you. But that's – I've just seen that. I guess I've hunted every day of the rut for 30-some years, um, like the whole month of November, the last week of October, what is that, five weeks for 30 years uh, in some pretty good areas. And that's just what I've seen, you know, the accumulation of all those experiences. And and, uh, you'd have a hard time convincing me that, that's not the way it goes down. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's it's super helpful. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever, and you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor recommended prescription and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit. All right. It comes with doctor prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. 
They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. I want to rewind now. So if we ended there at the end of November. Let's rewind back to the end of October, which is where we are right now. You mentioned that last year you killed one on the 29th and the year before you killed it on the 23rd. Tonight you're heading in. It's the 25th. You're probably going to kill one tonight. Um, so, uh, and, and when this, when this podcast drops will be the 28th. So people listening on okay. the day it comes out, you know, we're, we're right at the tail end of October. So I think it's worth expanding a little bit on this just because people will be, you know, ready to put this into action right away. Can you just dive in a little bit more specifically those last days of October? Maybe there's an anecdote from last year's hunt or the year before that would illustrate it. Maybe not, but just a few more of those next level things to be thinking about. I know you mentioned that these bucks are still, you know, patternable. They're still in their home range, but they're feeling a little more frisky. Uh, What are those next level things that you've been able to do to to actually take advantage of those behavioral things that can help you this time of year, but some people aren't able to. I think that, you know, there's, there's not a, a big difference in the way that you hunt the last week of October versus the first week of November. You might just be a little bit more aggressive once you get into November. Uh, But I still go, up on the on the ridges in the mornings and, and you know hunt near the bedding areas. I might not, like I said, dive quite as deep as what I would a week later because I always feel like you know push comes to shove on an average year, normal conditions, normal weather. November seventh is pretty hard to beat, so I'm always trying to you know sort of build up to that that time frame. So I want to make sure that I don't hunt all of my best spots too hard too soon because I want to make sure I've got some places to, to fall back on, you know, during that time when I think, you know, a lot of the bucks are going to be on their feet. You know, that, that last hard push before the majority of the does or a high percentage of the does are into estrus. Uh, so I'm still in late October. I'm hunting around the food in the evenings. I, I think you can't go wrong there. And I'm hunting closer to the bedding areas. And you don't have to know exactly where the buck is bedding. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it would be beneficial, but right now he's covering some ground. I mean, he's not getting back. and He may not even go back to his bedding area. He may have five different bedding areas. You know, I mean, they're not that predictable. So it's not as if, you know, you're programming a computer and you're going to come up with the same answer every time. Uh, they do a lot of stuff that's still a little bit unpredictable, even once you know where they live. So just be back in there in places that make sense from a, a huntability standpoint, places where you're not going to bump anything on the way in and out. You know, the wind is completely in your favor while you're on stand. Uh, don't take any real risks the last week of October and just rely on the fact that they're feeling their oats a little bit 
and they're going to they're going to be moving more. You don't have to go to them as much as you have to be in their core, someplace that you know that's favorable to you. Uh, but you would hunt the buck's core more. You know, as you get into November, you might spread out a little bit more and hunt, you know, like doe concentration areas. But if you know where there's a buck living, you know, hunt around that spot. Uh, and I guess that's the main thing I would say for October is, you know, he's still around there someplace. He hasn't, he hasn't, uh, you know, kind of given up his, his early fall patterns yet. Yeah. <clears throat> would it, would it, well, let me throw you my strange situation. And I'm just curious. I think okay. I know what you'll say, but I'm curious if you've got any different thoughts than what I have. I have a set of trips coming up that are going to send me out of state for almost the entire month of November. So that leaves me just this week. So the last week of October mm. to try to kill one of my target bucks on my local spots. Um, so if you only had this last week of October is the entirety of your rut related hunts in your let's say this you know a spot that you're gonna hunt a bunch or the spot that you would you would like to hunt a bunch typically uh would you do anything different than what you just described other than just being more aggressive yeah Yeah, be more aggressive i would get to where you think he's living quicker uh you know i'm going to ease in like this evening i'm going to be on the fridge tomorrow morning i'll probably what i'll probably do this evening is I'll go into one of my redneck blinds. I moved some trailer blinds around a few days ago. I'll probably go into one of them this evening and then just take my sleeping bag and sleep in there tonight, get up tomorrow. That way I don't have to bump any deer leaving. Um, I don't have anybody to drive in and run the deer off from the spot where I'm, where I'm going to be hunting. So I don't want to walk out of there, or, you know, even climb down and get onto a four wheeler mm-hmm. and spook those deer back in that area. Uh, but he could come out there. I mean, it's, it's basically, on the edge of a cornfield right below the ridge where I think this deer mostly lives. Uh, so he could be there tonight. And I certainly don't want to run the risk of, of educating any deer on the way out. So I'll sleep in the blind tonight, hunt it tomorrow morning, even though it's not an ideal morning spot. And then uh, I may do the same thing for a couple more days in, in other parts of that same cornfield below that ridge. Just kind of bounce around a little bit on the fringe, not really getting in there. But then, you know, toward the end of this week, I'm going to be up on that ridge where I think he's living. And uh, <clears throat> I may go I may go in there for an, you know, an afternoon hunt, set the stand up. But I've got uh, a little system I brought with me. I don't know if it's going to work or not yet. I haven't quite, haven't quite decided. But I, I've got a, a warm sleeping bag and a little bivy sack. It's basically, you know, a super lightweight bag that goes over the top of my sleeping bag. I'm just going to carry that in. For the afternoon hunt and then uh you know at the end of legal shooting time just climb down to the ground and, and sleep at the base of the tree nice and once again yeah so i mean we'll see like i said in theory it all sounds good but if it's 25 degrees and i'm you know curled up at the base of the tree that might not be very much fun but uh <laughs> the idea of course is not to spook this deer coming and going so if you're going to be aggressive you have to be cautiously aggressive if that if that makes sense and, and that means that you can't take risks with your entry and exit but you can go in there where that deer lives if he doesn't know you're coming and going uh, so that's what i would say is you know just be aggressive and go to where you think he's living 
as long as you can get away with it. But if you don't think you can get away with it, then it's not worth it. It's not worth a foolish risk uh, at, at any point of the season. But, you know, a, a kind of a well-considered, you know, I'm, I'm playing the risk-reward game here and it seems to fall my way. Uh, I'd say you'd be aggressive then because you don't have, you don't have to save it for, you know, November 7th. Yeah. Uh, you can, you can play all your cards right away. Yep. No downside other than, uh, using up those six, seven days I have and then wait till next year. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too bad that you can't, uh, well, I mean, I'm sure you've got some fun hunts lined up. Yeah. Yeah. It's too, it's too bad. You can't put it all together on, on your local spot there for longer. Yeah, it's going to be a different kind of year. I'm I'm used to getting some quality time chasing some of these these deer I know well. So uh, hopefully can pull it off early. But if not, it'll make for a good uh, longer story that continues into next year and <laughs> we'll learn some stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned that you're going to sleep in your blind, your redneck blind, maybe tonight. And you mentioned sleeping at the base of a tree once you get later into the week. I mean, that's some hardcore. You know, you're really dedicated to these access and exit kind of situations and making sure you're not spooking these deer. I was going to ask if you get more lax with your access during the rut. It sounds like that's not the case. Can you, can you speak to just in general, how you feel about entry and exit during the rut and how you think about differently? Are there things you do different this time of year? Do you allow yourself to cut some corners or be a little bit riskier with it because you know, it's the rut and you have to try things. What's, what's your take on all that? I think you can, you can be more aggressive if you're hunting pure travel routes. You know, if you're hunting endpoints, you know, where the deer kind of pool up, like I say a bedding area is an endpoint and a feeding area is an endpoint, but there are spots in between, like maybe there's a ditch funnel, you know, where the deer go up around a ditch when they're walking, you know, just cruising back and forth between bedding areas or they're going from a bedding area to a feeding area or whatever. Those kind of spots, because the deer aren't necessarily going to be there when you're going in and out, uh, in theory, at least, you know, you're going in before they've traveled through and you're going out after they've traveled through on, the, on an afternoon hunt and vice versa in the morning. Um, you, you know, you can come and go a little bit more freely, but uh, when you're hunting near those endpoints, and, and again, I'm talking feeding areas and bedding areas, uh, you have to be super careful because if you educate the deer in those places, then the whole, the whole system breaks down uh, because then they're more cautious and they're not moving naturally anymore. And you're not going to have nearly as much daylight activity in those areas. So that's kind of my sense. I don't, I don't get riskier during the rut. Uh, I don't take more chances. I hunt super cautious through the whole season. Uh, I'm just being a little bit more hardcore now because I don't have a cameraman. There's nobody that's going to be laying there saying, you know, how come we're out here again? (laughs) (laughs) You know, what was your, what was your, what were you thinking when you said we were going to sleep at the base of this tree? Uh Remind me of that again. Yeah. You know, so you can be a little bit more hardcore when it's just you. Uh, But I I don't think I'd subject a cameraman to, to, you know, what I'm going to go through. Uh, The other thing is we never really did this kind of stuff because, we had to produce those daily episodes all the time. And there was really no way to do that and hunt like this. Yeah. 
The, so we, but we also had we also had people around that could come and you know blow the field and you know there were ways there were ways to get out of a feeding area in the evening. It's harder to get out of a bedding area, you know, in the than it is to get out of a feeding area because mm-hmm. you know you can't just drive in there with a four wheeler and run the deer off like you can in a feeding area. Yeah, Man, this this is just a quick aside, but. People watching from the outside, I'm sure, watched you hunting your home farm for years and years and producing Midwest whitetail and killing all these big deer and all that kind of stuff. Um, And now they might look at you and say, oh, he's just hunting a farm. He can't do anything special to it. He doesn't even own it. He has to get in here hard and sleep on the ground and he doesn't have a show and there aren't people documenting everything. And they might think that Oh man, Bill must be missing what he used to have. But I'm curious, listening to you, I, I, I'm wondering, I'm thinking maybe, is this unbelievably liberating? Is this incredible to get to go back to this? Or or what is your thought on this new phase of your hunting well, life you find yourself in? Yeah, and I haven't been too secretive about, you know, I, I, I liked helping people get better at deer hunting. I liked producing Midwest Whitetail. Uh, it was a good business. You know, I got to do it on my own terms, on my own land. You know, I didn't have to travel. I could watch my kids grow up. You know, I could I could be around. So I got in the best of, of really a lot of worlds there. Now, you know, if I don't feel like going hunting sometimes, I just won't. You know, I'll go see mom and dad or I'll go watch the high school football game or whatever, you know. and, and uh, Or maybe I'll go sit on a piece of public land just because it's a beautiful view of the Mississippi River or, or something like that, you know, where... You know, back in the day, everything had, uh, there was an agenda attached to every hunt. You know, we had to get viewership. We had to maintain, you know, our storylines. We had to, uh, you know, react to the audience. We had to, you know, produce something. We had to create value. And uh, I don't have to create any value now. <laughs> just go deer hunting. <laughs> yeah. So it, from that standpoint, it's it's a lot more liberating. I mean, I, I miss... Uh, owning land. I mean, there's a lot of headaches that go with that too, as you know. Um, you know, it's not, it's not just this perfect world where you wake up and you go, Oh, this is awesome. I've got a farm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's cows getting out and there's all kinds of stuff you got to deal with that, you know, if you're just leasing it or hunting on permission or hunting public land or something like that, you don't have all those issues. Uh, but what you do have when you own it is the ability to set it up. So this it's very productive. Uh, and, and uh, I do, I do miss that, and I do miss uh, sitting in a tree and looking around and saying, "Well, you know, if I cut down, you know, these twelve trees over here in this corner, I can have another, you know, brushy spot for the deer to bed in or whatever." I mean, you're always thinking when you're hunting about your management projects, um, but I don't do that now because I'm not on land that I have any control. Yeah. So, overall, I'd say way more relaxing uh, now that it's been for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine. That's great. Uh, so back to back to how to kill deer. <laughs> now that we know how to kill deer and have a little more fun. Um, back to the, the hows of the hunting part. You know, you have been writing about hunting the rut and talking about hunting the rut uh, longer than almost anyone these days. I feel like I've been doing it for a lifetime and I have been not nearly as long as I've, have I been doing as you have. So what I'm curious about is this, 
there's these two major pillars of rut hunting strategy, I guess you could say, right? It's the, it's kind of like scripture. It's recited over and over every year. Every single article about the rut is going to include this. Every, you know, it's, it's the basics that everybody knows. It's hunt the does and it's hunt pinch points or funnels, right? I mean, those two things are kind of tried and true, concrete. This is the, the, the two foundational principles of hunting the rut. I'm curious, what are we missing or what has been oversimplified or what are we getting wrong? If you were to review conventional wisdom and all the things you've said over the years and other people have said in, in this line of business, now that you've seen it all, you've read it all, you've wrote it all, is there anything that we're missing on those two fronts? Uh, what would you add? Yeah, I, think, I, I think that every situation is different. And we try to stereotype because we want to help people. We have to generalize certain things. You know, we have to say, you know, this is the trend or this is how, you know, kind of uh, uh, things usually go. But every situation is a little bit different. And, and you know, the art of hunting, I think, is playing that risk versus reward game where risk is how much impact that you're making, what your chances are of educating the deer that you're hunting. And then the reward is, you know, what are the, the likelihood of, of one of the bucks I would like to shoot walking through during daylight. You know, so I think that's the, that's the part that, you know, maybe, like I said, every situation is unique. Uh, you know, if you're hunting public land, it's a way different, way different setup. If you're hunting on permission and there's two or three other guys there, or if you're hunting, you know, 100 acres versus 500 acres, that that formula changes. You know, every single place that you go, and there's a perfect way to hunt. It may not be perfect from the standpoint of the, you know you're going to kill, but there is a best way to hunt uh, in each one of those situations. So. You know, I think maybe we overlook the art of deer hunting a little bit. And, and uh, But, no, you can't go wrong hunting does. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the underlying principle of the rut. I think, you know, the, the pinch points, uh, you know, that's, that can work really well, too. But, you know, it's still in the, in the context of hunting does and hunting around does. Uh, you know, there's... There's, there's, the run isn't very complicated. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot that you have to do really well, but, uh, you know, you can't let the deer know that you're hunting them and you got to hunt ideally, you know, close to does. So I don't know. I, I think sometimes we try to make it more complicated because we have to sell articles. We have to right. try to, you know, try to get people interested in, in some new philosophy you know there's been a whole lot of discussion of buck bedding areas and all this stuff and i'm mm-hmm. like well maybe you know i guess i don't know uh i mean i've hunted a long time and i've never really felt like i had to know where they bed you know i need to know which part of the property that i'm hunting they live in but you know i feel like they've got options so they might have two or three different places where they bed i just need to know you know, how I can hunt their general area without them knowing that I'm there. That's the art. Hmm. Is there anything when it comes to that art that you have had to change in recent years? Is there any way that your thinking or 
or approach to that side of things has evolved recently? Because you've had a lot of time to fine-tune this. I, I got to believe, even though you've been killing deer for decades now successfully, that you must be better now than you were, obviously. What, yeah. I think, what stands out? I think you eliminate, you eliminate all risk. You know, I mean, let's say you've got 50 tree stands out. Let's just say for the sake of argument. And there's only six of them that are no-brainers that set up really well. Those are the only six I hunt now. I've got 44 tree stands sitting there that I don't hunt anymore. That's what's changed. Um, I don't take any risk with educating deer. And again, that kind of goes back though to the places that I hunt. If I was hunting more places where there was competition with other hunters, I would probably have to be more aggressive. But, you know, you've got this spot. I know you've got one. Maybe you've got five of them. Like, man, I just love hunting there, but I know that when I go in there, I'm going to bust something coming out, but mm-hmm. I just can't help myself. I'm going to go in there anyway. Yeah. Don't hunt that spot. You know, find find a different way, a different creative way to hunt it. Put a blind in there and sleep in the blind. Do, do something else, but don't bump those deer. You know, you, you think that it doesn't create that much damage, but it does. Uh, that's, that's the reason that we aren't consistently successful is because the deer know that we're hunting them. It's not because they're smart. Um, they really aren't smart. They're just really good at knowing when you're there and when you've been there. And then they're nocturnal. And with a bow hunting natural movement, you know, a nocturnal buck is your enemy. You know, so it's, that's what I think it really, maybe that's what's happened to me over the past 10 years that, that I wouldn't have thought about earlier is I would have hunted all 50 of those spots and just taken my lumps. Now, the amount of sanctuary in the properties that I hunt is massive. You know, let's say I'm hunting a 500-acre area, you know, 350 of it I might be, I never go into just because there's no easy way to hunt it without bumping something. So, what do so you... It, it's more of... More extreme, more extreme. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So... On hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.com health slash meat eater but you got to use the promo code meat eater 
That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. I'm curious, what do you do when one of your bulletproof sets ends up not being bulletproof, though? So you, you, you go to one of these places that you've got figured out and then maybe your target buck surprises you and goes downwind and wins you or a family group of does does something like that and blows for half an hour at last light. Uh, what do you do when they figure you out and, and now you have to react to that? Well, it, it was probably never bulletproof to begin with. Then um, there's, there's not very many really, really perfect stand locations. Uh, you might find a dozen of them in your lifetime maybe more. If you own land, you can create them. You know, I know how to create some of those kind of spots. Basically, you, you have to have a safe wind. You have to have a direction where the wind can blow, where you know the deer aren't going to get downwind of you. Uh, that's what makes them bulletproof. And then you use that for your entry and exit, because for whatever reason, maybe it's a lake, maybe it's a river, whatever it is, there's something that prevents them from getting downwind. Well, that's your entry and exit route, whatever that you know, whatever that thing is, that yeah. terrain feature, that's, that's how you're getting in and out. That's how you get a bulletproof stand. Um, the other thing that I've done a lot more of here recently, you know, I, I get criticized for hunting these redneck blinds all the time because people would rather see me in a tree. Well, now they can't see me doing anything, so nobody criticizes me anymore. <laughs> but if you, if you close up the doors and windows on those things, um, the deer don't smell you. And, and uh, you got to have some of the more recent blinds. You know, some of the stuff that they made, you know, six, eight years ago didn't have as many hinges, you know, and, and the gaskets weren't quite as good and they weren't airtight. <clears throat> the current batch of blinds are almost airtight. I mean, towards the end of, of filming for Midwest Whitetail, that was what we were doing. And we were never getting busted. We'd have two people in those things. And I would sit in there until the very last second with the windows closed and then just squeak open a window real quick and then take my shot out. And that would be, uh, that's as close to bulletproof as you can get in, in uh, especially getting around small feeding areas. You know, it's hard to hunt a ridge top, you know, with a bunch of cover out of the blind. But if you're in a feeding area or a small opening, natural opening or whatever, in a spot where the wind is really tough to play, just stay in the blind with the windows closed and open it right at the last second uh, to get your shot, and uh, you're not going to spook any deer. Uh, but that's 
that's the other extreme is, uh, you know, finding ways to completely eliminate the chance of getting winded. Mm-hmm. So speaking of these, you know, potentially bulletproof sets, it, it brings to mind for me, um, or at least when you're, when you're talking through this, I'm starting to envision different places like that, that I've seen, or I'm starting to kind of draw up ideal scenarios in my head, which makes me want to hear from you. Could you, could you maybe either think up, imagine a couple of these ideal sets, or could you describe a handful of these that you have yourself hunted uh, in detail? Like I'm, I'm talking a perfect rut hunting stand site. I'd love to hear what the terrain and habitat features around it that make it so good. I'd love to hear about how you have the access planned that makes it so good. I'd love to hear about what the wind situation that makes it bulletproof, um, how high in the tree, what kind of tree, whatever it is like that. I'd, I'd really be interested if you can think of two or three examples like this. I think it would really help people to to visualize and put something like this into action themselves. Do you have anything that comes to mind? Yeah. Oh, yeah, bunches of them. So the I can give you a, a terrain-related one. I used to hunt a spot when I was a kid. I haven't hunted there since, but it was on the upper edge of a rock quarry. And some of this bluff country, you know, there's limestone in the in the bedrock, and they'll eat away at it from the bottom, you know, and create these, these you know, big, I don't know what you call them, you know, craters in the side of the ridge where they taken out the stone and ground it up and made gravel out of it. Well, that's a sharp drop-off. That's like a cliff that, that creates a, a funnel, for one thing. You know, now the deer that are traveling that side of the slope, they have to go up around that quarry because they can't, they can't go through the quarry because it's just a sheer drop-off. So they go up around it. Well, that creates a funnel at the top of the quarry edge. And then if you hunt it with the wind coming, let's say, from the the ridge towards the quarry. So it's blowing across the top of the ridge, taking your sand out over that quarry, and you've got your tree stand set maybe 20 yards or 15 yards from the quarry edge. Um, there's no way you're ever going to get scented. So now the trick is how do you get in and out of there, you know, without bumping any deer? Well, they're not going that side hill because the quarry's there. So you park at the quarry, and then you walk up along the edge, you know, like the cliff edge, you know, from the bottom of the valley up, you work your way up around the cliff edge and get in your tree. Well, they're never going to smell where you walked. Um, that's a no-brainer. I hunted a spot like that quite a bit when I was a kid. Uh, I hunted a spot in Kansas that was another no-brainer. There was a all of the cover was on the on one side of this creek, and the creek was fairly deep. You had to have waders in order to cross this creek. And on the one side of the creek where I parked was all winter wheat. And the other side of the creek was this, like, maybe 15, 20-acre area of, of habitat. It was just a spot that didn't get farmed. It was too rough or something. I can't remember why. But I would just park, you know, back on the opposite side, on the away from the, you know, backside of the winter wheat, away from the creek, walk across the winter wheat field. Usually I'd try to follow a, a tree line or something, a fence line, something where I'm not just walking right across the middle of the field get into the creek, walk the creek up to the base of your tree stand, climb up the creek bank and get into your tree. So you hunt that with the wind blowing from the habitat on the other side of the creek, across the creek out into the winter wheat. And granted, you could get the odd deer that would come into that winter wheat on the other side of the creek, 
but there's no habitat on that side. And it's really hard to cross that creek. You know, it's about waist deep or so, and the deer don't really mess with it because they got plenty of food on the side that, you know, has the habitat. Uh, that was a no-brainer. Uh, anything that has to do with rivers or lakes, you can always find a spot where the deer can't get downwind of you. And, you know, whether you need a little boat uh, or sometimes you can get by with waders, but uh, you access it from that direction. There's not going to be any deer there because the train features, they prevent the deer from, from going there to begin with. Uh, another one that you run into quite a bit is in pasture country, you'll get areas where the cattle have access to a field and, and they've, they've eaten it right down to the ground, basically. But on the edge of that, there's a woodlot and the cows are fenced out of the woodlot or maybe it's on the neighboring property, whatever. Well, the deer don't really go across that open pasture. There's really nothing there for them. You know, you might get the odd one that goes across if there's something, you know, that's on the other side of it that they're trying to get to, like a standing cornfield or another woodlot or something like that. But normally, they don't travel across these wide open pastures. They stick to the fence lines and they stick to the cover. Well, now you've got a spot where the deer aren't going to be downwind of you. You know, you can use maybe a little low spot in the pasture or whatever, you, you know, anything you can do to hide. So you slip in there, step in a little ways into that into that woodlot, you know, 20 yards or so in, set your tree stand up with the wind blowing out into the pasture. Um, you know, your odds of, 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 you know, messing that up are pretty low. Uh, it's even better yet if it's a travel area, you know, where the deer are going from, you know, point A to point B and passing through that spot. I mean, if you start, if you start thinking about it, you'll come up with tons of spots like that. Uh, another one that works really well too, really quick is, you know, if you get high enough on a ridge, similar to like, like I said, talking about the edge of that quarry, but if the land drops away from you fairly quickly on the downwind side, uh, the deer passing on that side of you are going to be below your scent stream. And you want to be up close to the top, though, because otherwise you get swirling, you know, where the wind comes over the top of the ridge, mm-hmm. and then it starts to swirl, dropping into that valley. So if you're above that swirl point, uh, your scent is going to stay above the deer in the entire valley down the downwind side of you. Uh, that's kind of how I set up in, in bedding areas. I try to get situations like that on these ridgetop bedding areas because then I can approach it into the wind, get into my tree on the downwind edge of the ridge, and then any deer that travels you know, through there, even if they're you know, a little bit downwind of me, uh, they're not going to pick up my scent. So... Those are just a few, uh, but, you know, you, you study an area long enough and, and you'll figure out, you know, how to turn spots that were a little bit tougher to hunt into no-brainers by just tweaking them a little bit. Yeah. On that example, that last one related to ridges, I think this is a good time to dig a little bit more into that specific terrain feature because so many places across the country have some version of a ridge that deer use in relatively predictable ways. And I know that you mentioned in this new area you're hunting, and that's kind of the name of the game, and you described it as pretty straightforward. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how you're setting up? Like, a, Number one, how do you believe these deer are using those ridges? And then B, maybe a little more detail on how you're choosing where in the ridge you want to set up. I, I understand that you're getting up there uh, down on the downwind side, blowing your wind into the valley, but more detail on that would be helpful. Well, the, I'll start with that. First, 
whenever possible, try to find there's a like a little uh, I guess it's a little valley or a little hollow or draw leading up the ridge, leading up the side of the ridge. It'll go around the tops of those little draws. So if you have an erosion ditch, let's say for example, that comes down off of off a ridge, uh, that's a that's a prime example of uh, of a drain feature that they're going to go around. But it can be more subtle than that. It can be just a you know five foot six foot deep dip, you know where the the terrain kind of you know it's kind of hard to I'm showing you on a topo map, but you you can probably envision it. It's not most ridges aren't just yeah. perfect. They've got them you know going on either side. So I usually go up the draw and then set up at the top of that draw, because then you get a little bit of a bottleneck effect at the top because the deer are going to, like I said, tend to follow that contour around. And then you get to keep a little bit more out of sight coming and going because you're down in that little draw. In places where you don't have those draws, really what you're doing is playing a trade-off with how far out toward the end of the point that you want to go, because the density of bedding seems to get higher the further toward the end of the ridge that you get like the point and, and you know sometimes you'll have ridges i guess that don't have points um you know they're just like long ridges that run along the side of a creek or something like that but normally they go out to a point you know it's because they're their valley that adjoins you know the one that that overlooks you know that the, that the ridge overlooks normally they go out to a point and that's where the the uh, key bedding area is. You know, deer will bet will bet all along the ridge, but they really do like to favor that very end because then they can see in every direction. They don't really have stuff that sneaks up on them. Uh, they can smell what's behind them and they can see everything that's out in front of them. Um, so, so naturally, they like to get out on those points. So I don't like to set up right out on the point because I feel like it's hard to get out of a morning stand if the deer are bedding close to you. And if you're going to try to hunt that spot in the afternoon for whatever reason, it's going to be super hard to get in there because the deer are going to be there, you know, already when you're trying to sneak in. So that's the other thing I would look at is try to anticipate where the deer are actually going to be bedded. And uh, I don't want to set up right on top of where they're going to be bedded. Uh, I would rather be a little ways off and let the movement, you know, let the rut and the, and the activity that takes place in those in those areas you know, move a buck within bow range rather than running the risk of being right on top of the deer that are bedding there. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, when, when thinking about a situation like this, like hunting a ridgeline or, you know, the head of a ditch that kind of funnels deer along as they cruise along that ridge or any other terrain, pinch point, funnel, et cetera, a lot of times we envision those types of setups as being as being a spot where you wait for, you know, opportunity. You wait for any buck that's going to come through there or what any buck of your age, target range, or whatever it is. It's not the kind of thing that you typically think about when trying to kill a specific buck. And really, I think that applies a lot of the time to the rut in general, right? When people think about the rut, yeah, think, folks claim that, yeah, you can't I, pattern one. I'm curious if you, if you have a thought on approaching the rut with a specific deer in mind you know do you do anything different can you pattern a deer in any kind of way during the rut or is it 
kind of hoping and praying? No, I, I think you can. I think that they uh, they may not be quite as predictable, but they're still going to be staying somewhere near their, their typical core. You know, like wherever you found them in the middle of October, <clears throat> they're going to be in that general area. Some of them will just take off. You know, like you know they're on the odd buck. They will leave and go a mile away or whatever, two miles away. You, know, you hear those stories all the time, but that's not been really my experience in general. Uh, the bucks usually don't just take off and leave. Um, they they may they may expand their range a little bit, but more than anything, they're just tied up with does and their breeding does, and they're not really moving. Um, so I, I don't feel like you can't kill them in, in their in their normal ranges, their normal, you know, near their normal core, the spot where they spend most of their time in October is still the spot where you should be able to find them uh, during the rut, just not quite as consistently because they're not there every day. That's the, that's probably the main difference because, you know, they might be on one end of their range for two days breeding a doe and then on the other end of their range for two days breeding a doe, whereas in October they might have been in their core or near their core every single day yep. uh, but you can still kill them you know on purpose during the run you don't have to abandon the hope of, of you know trying to kill a specific buck yeah 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 I've, I've seen the same thing in a lot of places too and i know that some studies have even shown when radio collaring or gps collaring these bucks that you know they do have those core key places that they keep returning to like those doe bedding areas or a doe feeding area and they they cycle through often. So I do think that's one of those things that's gotten overblown is that people think these deer throw all caution and reason to the wind and they just run around willy nilly, but they still have a goal in mind. Of course, when they get on a doe, then it does become kind of wild. But when they're seeking a doe, trying to find those does, there's, there's a handful of places where they usually will be in any given spot and those bucks know it. So we'd be wise to do the same thing, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's just unfortunate that that the rut only has a few really good days. You know, like you're saying, people think it's willy-nilly, you know, wide open from beginning to the end, but it's not because they they just don't move really, really well very often. Uh, and, and I think a hot doe is one of the triggers, and sometimes it has to do with the weather, and sometimes it's just stuff that I don't know why. Uh, but you'll have days during the rut where you'll see, you know, 10 bucks, and you think, oh, man, things are busting loose. This is going to be awesome. Then the next day you don't see any. Mm-hmm. And you're hunting, you know, basically the same areas. So it's not like it's an end-to-end uh, action-packed time. Uh, you know, you, you still have to be there, you know, as often as you can. You know, put your time in so that you're there during those five or six days when it's really good. You know, they're not five or six contiguous days either. They're just five or six days. <laughs> and sometimes you can predict them and sometimes you can't. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting game. Uh, I've learned, I've learned that the hard way too, that it's not, it's not good all the time. Yeah. So I'm curious about the upcoming conditions. Speaking of days that are better than some across at least a lot of like the upper Great Lakes, the Midwest, Central uh, parts of the country, we've got a lot of rain pushing through and, 
you know, a lot of wind as these fronts are moving across the country. Uh, as far as that rainy days or just after big rainy days and then windy days with the fronts pushing through, what's your take on, on how deer activity or buck activity in this time of year is impacted by that? I, I mean, I don't think they move very well when it's raining hard. Um, a light rain doesn't seem to impact them that much. And people think that they don't like to move when it's windy, but that's not been my experience either. You know, I feel like windy days can be really, really good. Some of my very best hunts have been on pretty windy days. Uh, so don't let the wind throw you. In fact, I've, I've had a lot better success on windy days than I have on still days. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if the deer, they just kind of get a little bit edgier on those still days. Right. I think it's because they, they can hear everything. And, and so they just stand there listening. You know, like they'll hear a vehicle on a gravel road two miles away and they'll stop to listen. You know, where if, if the wind was blowing 15 miles an hour, they wouldn't hear that truck 100 yards away. Right. You know, because of the leaves, you know, the leaves rattling in the trees. So I feel like they're they're hypersensitive on still days and they don't travel as well as they do on windy days. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's just the opposite of what some people think there. Yeah, well, I'd say that's good news for for folks across uh, across a lot of the country this week, at least, because that seems to be in the forecast. <laughs> um, I yeah, know, yeah. I know you've got to run here pretty quick because you you've got a big hunt ahead of you, and I know um, I know that you've got high hopes for it. I do too. So I want to just wrap it up with one last kind of thought here. Question: I th- I've always thought that a lot of rut hunting success, of course, like the X's nose matter. And spending out time out there, that matters a ton, of course. But there's this other side of the rut that is happening between our ears. There's this whole mental side of, you know, hunting this this high pressure. Like this is the, we build up the rut so much all year, right? We we're eat, sleeping, and breathing just to get to this period. This is the Super Bowl of our season, and then it gets here, and it's uh, the million different things that are possible during the rut. Um, I'm curious for you, Bill. What do you view as maybe the greatest mental challenges we typically face during the rut? And how have you learned to overcome them? Or when I bring this topic up of the mental challenges of the rut, what comes to mind to you and and how have things evolved for you? I think the biggest challenge that we have is we treat it like a sprint and not a marathon. Uh, You know, we, we get into it and we're so excited and we go to our best spots and we burn them out. And then we go to our next best spots and we burn them out. And, you know, we need to treat the rut, especially if you have enough days to hunt, you know, where, where you don't have to go for broke right away. You need to treat it as a marathon and not a sprint um, because you'll have better success, you know, over the long haul by being patient and working your way in on the stuff that makes sense rather than just diving in on top of it right from the, the start. Um, but other than that, you know, you can get worn down, but, you know, as hunters, we love this stuff. So it's not like when you get worn down, it's not the same as if you're, you know, going out and running five miles a day and you're like, oh, I need a break from this. Right. It's more of a, you know, it's a different kind of worn down. It's not the kind of worn down that you're hoping to get away from. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's the kind of worn down that you love. Um, yeah. So I don't look at it and say, well, I've gotten burned out. I never get burned out on hunting the rut um it's just you just have to be patient and 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 not get too uh you know too crazy right off the bat because you can ruin your season by being impatient 
And uh, that's just what I would caution people. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Wise, wise words, Bill. Well, I, I know you've got to get out there and hit the woods soon. So I want to, I want to let you get that, get after it. Uh, is there anything you want folks to keep an eye out from you or is there any place people can still keep in touch with you or stay abreast of what you're up to these days that you want to share? Uh, I've, I'm, I'll probably get back into media a little bit more again at some point. I'm taking a break, kind of hitting the reset button, but I mean, I do have the billwinky.com website going. I haven't got a whole lot of content on there. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to, you know, pop in there once in a while and answer questions that people might have and, and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, for the most part, I'm just kind of flying under the radar, uh, hitting the reset and then kind of seeing, you know, where I, you know, where I come back to the surface again. Uh, you know, it is 30 some years of going as hard as I could go. Yeah. It's time to take a little break and reassess, you know, everything about it, not only just the business part of it, but even my own motivation and, you know, what, what about it that fires me up? Um, so, so I'm not really doing a whole lot, which is fine with me right now, but I do have to get back to work. So it's not like I can go on forever like this. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a much, uh, a well-deserved rest and I'm glad that you're enjoying it, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's deserved, but it sure is nice. <laughs> I bet. Uh, I'm jealous of all the trout fishing you've been doing in particular. I've seen that. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been, See, that was something I did growing up as a kid too. I was a big time trout fisherman, not awesome at it, but I went all the time, you know, and just getting back to that, you know, and, and having fun, you know, getting that little tug on the end of the line is, mm. is, uh, that's been, that's been good for me too. Yes. Well, if you're ever swinging through, uh, Eastern Idaho or Western Wyoming, you're welcome to go fish with me at my cabin out there any summer. You just let me know. Well, we might have to hit the, uh, Henry's fork at some point then. Oh man. The Henry's but, uh, fork is right. It's in my backyard. Well, let's go. We'll plan on it. It'll be, you tell me when it's best and I'll be there. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk soon, Bill. Good luck tonight and the rest of your rut. Yeah. Sounds good. You too. Thank you. All right. That's it. Hope you enjoyed this one. Thank you for tuning in. We'll keep this short and sweet. Get out there, get your butt in a tree or a ground blind or a patch of weeds, whatever it is, get outside, chase those deer and have a good time. Execute, but have a good time. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.